This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Andrew, if I were to sell you a book in a grocery store, mm-hmm. what would you want it to be about? Could you explain to me more about, like, do you own the grocery store and this is on an end cap? Are you standing in the grocery store hmm. selling me this book? No, this is, uh, I quit my podcast, Overdue Podcast, about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And <laughs> I'm opening Craig's gr- Craig's Fresh Grocers. Mm-hmm. Um, eggs and Craig's. Eggs and, and Craig's, a neighborhood grocery store. And I know that people love to buy paperback books at the mm-hmm. grocery store. Mm-hmm. So I've decided to put them next to all the soap because mm-hmm. some books make you feel dirty. Yeah, right. So I, I would, I think mostly mysteries, but also some light romance where all of the uh, hanky-panky is like happens in paragraph breaks that you don't actually get to read anything about <laughs> like three asterisks and a page turn. Yeah. There's and a lot of, there's a lot of this in the the thing that I read this week. What did you read this week? I read passions promise by Danielle Steele. Um, it also is sometimes titled golden moments. Neither oh. of these titles, as far as I can tell, have anything to do with the contents of the book, but they both sound very like, Grocery store mystery bookie. Which is how I know of Danielle Steele. Like my, I don't think my mom owned any Danielle Steele, but she did own like a lot of Grisham and Dean Kuntz, who's in my brain, their book covers are the exact same as all Danielle Steele books. We going we gonna to do some Kuntz on this show sometime? We should do some Kuntz on we this gonna show. Get up, get up in that Kuntz? Get in that alternate Stephen King reality that he's been building in the Kuntzverse. Mm-hmm. Um, the Kuntzverse. But Danielle Steele is someone that I was been like, what What are people doing in there? Why, why are those books just flying off those shelves? It's, yes, yeah, in this one, it's a little bit of mystery, a little bit of romance, and a lot of, I don't know, like personal growth. <laughs> Okay, okay. And just like relationship drama and like coming of, not even coming of age, but just like coming into your own drama. Into yourself, sure, yeah. sure. So Danielle Steele, Danielle Fernanda Dominique Schuline Steele. I was sure that Danielle Steele was not her real name, but it appears to be her <laughs> real name, which is yeah. wild. Was born in 1947. Um, her father was f- French? No, he was no. That's incorrect. She lived in France. I'm looking at three different notes at once. She currently lives in France. Also, she lived yes. in San Francisco for a long time. She lives in this weird big house that used to be the mansion of Sugar Tycoon Adolf B. Spreckles. Whoa, the Spreckles Manor. Where are the Sugar Tycoons? They've all gone, Andrew. Sugar's where's bad for like, you, don't you where's know? Where's Patrick Domino, the the Sugar King? <laughs> I isn't 
Where's the Domino building? It's either like Milwaukee or Boston or something. I don't know. Baltimore. It's in some I don't city. Know. Anyway, <laughs> Danielle Steele's uh, dad is descended from, or it was descended from Lauenbrau beer owners. Her mom was the daughter of a Portuguese diplomat, so she's like grew up of means in France. Uh, her parents, I think, divorced when she was pretty young. She spent most of the time with her dad. Uh, she studied in New York, went to the Parsons School of Design, and later NYU. She's like into fashion design as well as literature design i'm mm. not sure what literature design is i think that's just a fancy way to say writing right she went on to study writing <laughs> i don't know i think literature design like i'm just i'm designing this story with the words that oh I'm i see i don't that's know smart. or maybe it's like book covers i don't know or not sure. what if it's fonts here i'm just gonna google you keep doing your thing okay she has published over 160 books and she is, lit- I don't know if you knew this, Andrew, she is the fourth best-selling author of all time. Wow, really? Who are the yes. other, who are the top, who's above her? Okay, number three, Barbara Cartland, who wrote over 700 books, many of them romance. Is. I've never heard of her. Number two, William Shakespeare. Nice. Number, oh, number one is God, who wrote the Bible. Well, it's at... No, it's Agatha, it's, it's Agatha Christie. So I think like episode one thousand, we read the Bible, right? Yeah, episode one thousand through two thousand is just us reading the, is Bible. the Bible. Did you find out what literature design is? So what I could find, at least in the modern era, is that literature design is like designing corporate literature. It's designing like brand literature. Oh, well, so that, ex- that, okay, so her second job after she got out of school, she was working at a PR agency called Supergirls. It was a boutique ad agency, and she'd written, like, poetry and stuff as a kid, and when she was working with Ladies Home Journal, there was a guy there, ironically, uh, who encouraged her <laughs> to <laughs> try writing a book, um, and I think that was when she was like 19 or something. And she f- published her first novel, Going Home, in 1972. And then from there on out, she just never stopped She writing never stopped. So, okay, so Going Home comes out in 1973, according to the list I'm looking at. And then the one I read, um, I guess Passion's Promise is the U.S. title, and then Golden Moments is the U.K. title. I guess okay. the, the Brits don't like Passion or Promises. <laughs> Um, but yeah, she so she does that in seventy seven, and I believe we read this. I, I read this one in particular. We picked this one to read because it's one of the ones that sort of established her as the juggernaut that she became sales wise. Yes. yes. Um, but anyway, between nineteen seventy seven and now, she writes at least one book a year, usually three, and sometimes as many as like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven novels are listed here under her name in 2017. Yeah. I I want to She's remember? gotten more prolific as time has gone on. Like yeah. the list of things that came out in 2016, 2017, 2018. Like, man, if you could get if you could do more work in those three years in particular, that is like the opposite of my experience. I know, I know. Um and she, it, it was 1989 when she was listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for having a book on the New York Times bestseller list longer than anyone else, and not just one book, but any book, for 381 consecutive weeks. Whoa. She had a book on the bestseller list. Um, 
And you that's you were seven. That's seven years. That's seven <laughs> that's and one third time. years. Um, and you were saying that you know she was also churning out you know churning out a bunch of these novels. She's also been like writing children's books. Um, she wrote like two years ago, maybe three or four years ago. She like wrote the lyrics for an album of French music. Okay, Cause that's because you're Danielle Steele, and that's what you do. Um, she doesn't write sequels, though, Andrew. She yeah, did she write does a not book. Write sequels. She wrote a book called Bungalow Two, which I thought was maybe a sequel to the original Bungalow, but <laughs> you couldn't find it. No, it's just about a place called Bungalow Two. Um, two of her other titles that I really enjoy: The Clone and I, a high tech love story. Uh, which is about starring, a, you starring Yul Brynner is there, the clone. <laughs> there is a man who gets cloned, and his his clone's name is Paul Clone. <laughs> it's spelled with a K, so it's cool. <laughs> and then there's a book called Toxic Bachelors, which I think is a good Boy, name for just, a book. Yeah, I think that was the one that the television series The Bachelor was based true. on. True, true, true. Um, yeah, do you? I we've probably talked about this. I do wish more books followed the movie title convention, mm. where you could just read like, "Oh, this is Passion's Promise too." Yeah, they. I feel like in fantasy, like fantasy novels, where there's so many sequels, right? And I don't. There are think a lot they, of sequels, but they all get these weird highfalutin names. Yeah, and then you have to come up with a different name for the whole series. Yeah, well, we could like, really why, just be calling it just, Harry I, Potter Two. Yeah, Harry Potter Two or The Hobbit Two. The, the Hobbit. Hobbit, the Hobbit Six, is Silmarillion. <laughs> this one's pretty different from the first one. <laughs> That's like Hobbit negative five, because you mm. have to go in chronological order. I guess not in release order. Not in release. So the order. Hobbit would be like Episode Four. Oh God, Star Wars does use the numbers, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh God. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what else about <laughs> Steel? Sorry, I got distracted. No, it's um, okay. You thinking about Star Wars? I get it. It happens sometimes. Um, she, I, okay. I think about when we bring stuff like this up, and I try to think about like for whom we're bringing it up. But she's been married like five times, and it's pertinent for a couple of reasons. A, she writes. A lot of people in interviews have asked her like which books are based on her life or not, which characters are similar to her. She famously told someone uh, when asked about this that I don't kiss and tell, which means, means just you just write yourself into those novels, lady, aren't you? Um, <laughs> and when you're writing in the romance genre, and she's even mentioned this on her website, that like she does recognize the irony that you know she's been, I think she was in two really long-term Merit is one for like 17 years and one for eight or nine years. But um, a couple of them, like the one around this book, she was married to a guy named Danny Zugelder Mm -hmm. that she met while she was interviewing an inmate in a prison in California where Zugelder was also incarcerated. And then she married him in the prison canteen. And divorced him a few years later. Had, was he still in prison at that time, or had he gotten out at some point? I think he might have gotten out, but then I think he did some bad stuff later and perhaps went back in. Um, but 
I th- like there's like a social justice component to this book, right? Isn't one of the characters like a lawyer or something? Yeah, um the so the main love interest whose name is Lucas John, which is a, two first names, which is my favorite name thing. <laughs> if you can have two first names, that's it's just like you're a okay in my book. But he's um Anne and Daniel Steele's book, I guess. But um he is a convict who was in prison for six years and now is a prison reformer. Okay. And who is, in fact, like talking with prisoners through other like intermedi- intermediary still. And, and this is not always like political or nonviolent huh. reform that he's trying to push. Like there are prison riots that he helps to incite. And it's all it's all about getting better like prison conditions and um, getting people wages at all and like raising those wages and just like generally arguing for humane treatment of people who are in the prison system. Interesting. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of neat. There is, I feel like this book and, and I'm not, you know, we, we can still talk a little bit more about steel. I feel like this yeah. book has a lot of, just a lot of padding in it. Sure. Sure. That could get trimmed out. There's just like a lot of conversations between people who, like I get the the conversations never really go anywhere. I guess the the it's intended to show people like getting to know each other and being close, but I don't need to see like every single minute of that <laughs> Fair. happening. So like that's sure. my main criticism of it, I guess. Okay. But um but yeah, that that character is interesting and I and I think is drawn from Steele's past. Now she doesn't give a lot of interviews. She's she doesn't like exposing herself to like press attention, paparazzi attention. She tries to shield her kids from it. Yeah, she has nine yeah. children, which is which is a lot of children. But, yeah, um, I think some of that wanted to shield her kids. That she did. One of her sons, uh, Nicholas Traina, did take his own life in the late nineties after like a protracted legal battle around his adoption oh, by one of her husband by like a, her husband at the time. And she, I mentioned that mostly because she wrote a nonfiction book about him, and then went on to like donate all of those proceeds to the Nick Train Foundation, which funds like treating mental illness. And like she's won some awards for her writing. Like the Fran- the the French government gave her the Officer of the Order of Arts and Letters like appointment in two thousand two, and that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's also won like a number of awards for her work in like mental health and like donating to and um, which I find ironic because there's an interview with her from 1979 where she says writing is all I enjoy. I don't cook or do charity stuff and I'm very unathletic. (laughs) (laughs) People change, you know, at least one of those things has changed. We know for sure. um, Yeah, no, I think we bring up, the number of marriages and the number of kids not to like make any comment on them at all, except like we've read so many male authors that have been married yes. like five times. Cause they're a bunch of hound dogs or whatever. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and Daniel Steele just like go out and get it. Just get it. That's how I, that's how I read. Sure. And being like in a bunch of relationships. Sh- just like get yours, Daniel Steele. Also, there's like part of what what when she does give interviews, um, the couple I read were pretty terse, but she does like to tell stories about, especially early in her career, when she's like fitting in writing around her life by like sitting on the floor of the bathroom and her typewriter's on top of the toilet, and she's just like finishing her novel because she's got to get it done. <laughs> it's like, okay, cool job, lady. 
Um, that also opens up opportunities for like if you have to go the to, to the bathroom, you could just be like, "Hey, I gotta gotta go into the office." <laughs> yeah, if you set up the expectation that you're writing in there, you could do anything. You in there. Get, yeah, the bathroom is a land of unlimited possibilities. Andrew, I don't want to talk about your unlimited <laughs> bathroom. Can we talk about the book now? Sure, let's do it. What do you want to know? I want to know whose passion is it and what is it promising? Well, I mean, if I had to map the nearly nonsensical title of this book to any of the stuff that happens in it, Mm -hmm. it would be because the passion between the two main characters opens up opportunities and like promise of like a better life to at least one of them. So that's I, passion's promise. I love your fifth grade book report just now. <laughs> I called on Andrew. And the name of this book <laughs> is Passion's Promise. So who's um, who's passions? Uh, so the the protagonist is a 29 year old woman named uh, Kezia Saint Martin. Okay. And as you might be able to guess from the fact that she has three names, uh-huh. she is a socialite like heir to a lot of money and a lot of uh prestige her mother was from like old european money and her father was like from new like barely three generations of american money <laughs> okay i mean that that tracks with when was this late 70s 77, early yeah. 80s mm-hmm. yeah if you had money in america it was like three generations old sure yeah okay. either you were a rockefeller or you <laughs> Are you? Yeah, the generation was, thing is right, though. Um, okay, but so so she is not only is she like a socialite heiress, but also she was orphaned. Her mom died at around age eight, and her dad when she was around ten. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's not only has she had to deal with like not having parents for a lot of that time, but she also really does not love this lifestyle and like having a name like a capital n name to live up to okay and so they're always like they're always paparazzi chasing her around and there are a lot of like rules in this world and and things that she can do and can't do and and it's it's, some of it is is gendered and and they talk about that and that's some of the most some of the more interesting stuff is they as, as she talks about how like the the thing that drove her mom to drink and then to die was that she was in a relationship and like going to run away with like one of the mailed servants. I don't remember if he's a butler or a driver or what he was, but, um, and they talk about how, like she literally says the the phrase she says is balling. The maid is a storied tradition that goes back hundreds of years, but women cannot do the same oh. thing without it being like a, deeply disgraceful thing that you can't talk about and you can't have out in public or even out in, in private. Like a, it, yeah. it is expected of men. But when a woman does anything like the same thing, it is this like scandal that yeah, the breaks no- families apart. The notebook was just on TV. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that scene where Rachel McAdams mom is like, I almost loved that construction worker, mm-hmm. but I didn't cause I loved you more. Isn't it sad? <laughs> <laughs> I guess in in more modern fiction, yeah, sure. 
women kind of get to do a little bit more like the the pool boy and the like the cougar thing and like there's a little bit more of that going on yeah but i I also remember the american pie movies (laughs) i do remember the american pie movies (laughs) but i also wonder too if that's like 29 is an interesting age to deal with that sort of thing where i feel like you just dropped the cougar thing and that certainly has a presumption i, I of did a watch all of cougar town did. recently so it's like front of mind for me sure um i i did i read a, a review of one of her books from the 1980s 85 um talking about the appeal of daniel Steele books and uh, it says many this is from the christian science monitor actually um many women today especially career-minded individuals have fit themselves nicely into a new format no longer the quote working girl they are the executive administrators the vps the account managers but many another has suddenly awakened in the midst of this era of change to find herself at the mercy of cultural whirlwinds that have uprooted ancient mores and comfortable positions um and it goes on to say that this woman is like seeking solutions for how to be yourself in the modern world and it, the Danielle Steele seems to like I don't know not, not necessarily provide solutions but just like share stories of that milieu of like, sure mm-hmm. I'm, I'm moving up the ladder but I've got all these other expectations now that I'm on the ladder in the first place um Hmm. Well, and like having a career and choosing not to have a career and like there's all kinds of like coded everything that women still have to deal with that sucks. um, So, okay, so we got Kezia and she's got a tragic past. uh, But today she balances that with with like being herself by juggling a few different alter egos. So there is Kezia St. Martin, heiress, gadfly like party or who goes out to these to the social you know every time somebody says that something is the social event of the season that's sure. the kind of event that we're talking about okay um, so like she's we- bruce weddings wayne and yeah weddings and and fundraisers and yeah she's sort of sort of bruce wayne-ish okay okay except without the vigilante crime fighting now what she is doing secretly on the side is writing a lot um so she has this one column that she writes under a male pseudonym where she writes gossip basically about all of her socialite friends <laughs> okay and none of them like none of them know it's her um she has another pen name that she writes more serious reported stuff under okay um and like nobody barely anybody knows about this like the only person who knows about the um the gossip reporter personality is like her publisher and then hmm. she sends stuff to him and then he kind of disseminates it where it needs to to go but that that is the most shielded of them and she doesn't um, need to do this for money right like she has money no it's a, it's a thing that she so as a in in her early 20s she was you know trying to buck this socialite heiress thing like she was really uncomfortable in the role always had been and so she tried to get a job as a reporter at the times and this is all happening in New York, so that's the times that we're talking about. Sure. And apparently everybody there just played, like, Hayes the Rich Girl until she, like, quit in tears, which is, is sad. Yeah, there's some sure. other There's some other, like, rich people problems in this book that we'll talk about in a little bit that are not <laughs> okay. as sad as the book tries to make them sound. Sure. But that's, yeah. So she's, to, like, to keep herself 
feeling satisfied. She still, you know, she still wants to write, but she can't do it out in the open. So she's doing it under these couple of pseudonyms. And then there's another personality she sort of juggles where she goes and doinks this 23-year-old artist in Soho. And she Whoa. just like hangs out with him. And like in, in this world that is pretty close to her own, you know, she can go there on the subway. But like nobody knows who she is because nobody pays attention to like socialite culture in Soho, I guess. D- does he know who she is? He... Saw her in the paper once, but they don't like talk about it. Okay, so is she Don Draper, like kind of, but she's not married. <laughs> okay, all right. She goes out like as Kezia. She goes out to parties with this guy named Wit, who is uh, gay, and like closeted about it. But they both kind of serve a purpose for each they other. They have like, an arrangement. Is, yeah, he is, and. and She's not even supposed to know that he's gay, and the the way the book handles the fact that he is gay is one of the more 1977 things about oh, it. Oh, really? Um, yeah, because he gets he gets called a faggot a lot by like a lot of different characters. Ooh. Like it's very it's it's very like th- there's a there's a point where one character who is in you know in Steele's kind of defense supposed to be like an older fuddy duddy character, yeah. not even not even a jerk, just like out of time like he's um, oh okay Kezia's like fathered figure like the executor of the estate of her parents and he's an older guy and he's like you know some of this went on when I was a kid but it was never taken so seriously and, and yeah it was it, like why do people decide to do this kind of thing like it, it's not a not a super like progressive <laughs> viewpoint but nobody in the book is very like sympathetic about it He's he's kind of meant to be a little laughable, I think, or huh. like a little not. It, he's not the butt of jokes, but it is like the he he does get treated badly by some characters, just in, in the way they think about him and comment on him. That yeah, yeah, it, that that is very like product of its timey. Um, okay, okay. But anyway, like they they serve that purpose in each other's lives, and they get along well enough. But there is like no actual relationship there. They just go out in public and. And that is the role that they'd fill in each other's lives in this in this world. Okay, in her socialite life in particular. Yes, right, sure. right, sure. So, where, what does she meet a uh, a romantic man? Does she break a big story? So, what happens is that she goes to talk to her publisher whose last name is simpson and is always referred to as simpson he has a first name and i don't remember it so we're just gonna call him simpson great um he he says i know you don't like to do interviews because you're worried about like blowing your cover and like getting found out but there is this guy his name is lucas john and he's a he has two first names (laughs) and he is trying to like reform the prison system he's a convict he got and and there are, I didn't look up the California laws, but um, there's this concept where people could be um, sentenced to like X years to life, mm-hmm. and I guess in practice, at least as Steele presents it in the book, people interpret that to life thing like pretty loosely to like throw people back in jail for basically whatever reason they want to. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. Like um, undo a parole or undo yeah, some yeah, sort of yeah, early yeah. release. Okay. Yeah, okay. Basically. So he is he is out on parole and he is, you know, after a lot of agitating from within the system for change is now agitating from outside the system for Great. change. And he says, you know, I, I know that you're getting tired of this like socialite column that you do. I know you want to be doing like more like serious work. And I think this is a good opportunity. Like he's out in Chicago. Probably nobody would notice. Like it's a, it is a low risk, high reward interview for you. Like go out and meet this guy. Hmm. Um, and so she does, she flies out to Chicago. She's going to interview this guy and she gets to the, the, he's at a presentation that's being given before they sit down for the interview. And she has built this image of him as like this, the way she describes him, I can only think of like Danny DeVito. He's a Danny DeVito type. <laughs> now, is that actually what he is or what she thinks he's going to be? Yeah, that's what she that's what she thinks he's going to be. Okay. And so she is so prepared herself to see Danny DeVito <laughs> that she gets to this conference and she sees this like big strapping handsome boy up there given this and and she's like she thinks it's he's a guy who's up there introducing Lucas John just and waiting so he's, for the Danny DeVito and, so he, and he's up there for like half an hour and she's like wow this introduction is getting a little long <laughs> and she finally like it finally dawns upon her after an impossible amount of time that no this is Lucas John he's not Danny DeVito he's could more you? of like a Patrick Warburton on Seinfeld type could you imagine if you went to a TED talk and you thought Danny DeVito was gonna be there it was Patrick can you, Warburton given can it instead. You imagine if you went to a TED Talk and it was Danny DeVito there. I would listen to whatever <laughs> like, TED Talk he wanted to give. Um. Anyway, so it's not Danny DeVito. It's Patrick Warburton, and <laughs> <laughs> I like that our gold standard for like hunky dude is David Putty from Seinfeld. What is wrong with us? <laughs> no, he is though. He's like a he's a handsome guy. He's got a nice voice, you know. He does have a very good voice. That's he's a true. Good voice actor, I Good like, hair. I like, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's who came to mind, but it was yeah. I was like, "Oh, he's a real Patrick Warburton type." So, she <laughs> She goes and she interviews Lucas John, who is unexpectedly handsome, right? Yeah. And they kind of hit it off a little bit because she's like, she's just impressed by how he carries himself and like how he's devoted to his cause. And he obviously thinks that she's pretty because she's a socialite heiress in a Daniel Steele novel. Sure. Yep. (laughs) And from there, they just like, they start talking a lot and they start like, making surprise cross-country trips to see each other okay and so okay. she is she is initially like her the name of her like serious writer pseudonym is k.s miller and so she tells him initially that her name is kate but then he sees kezia in a newspaper and he's like i'm gonna get this secret out of her and she just she's her patience with all this like multiple life thing that she's been doing has been wearing thin anyway. But then she meets this charismatic David Putty type Mm. who is like tearing down her walls. And she's like, you know, I don't feel like lying anymore. I'm just going to tell you the truth. And after they know each other for literally two days, they say that they love each other. So like things progress. (laughs) Yeah. Rapidly. Well, you go to the right Ted talk and your feelings just are going to happen. You can't Mm -hmm. hold them back. Mm hmm. 
We've all been there. Come We've on. We've all been to that TED Talk. It's true. So she's revealed she that she is Bruce Wayne and She is Keezy St. Martin and yes. they enter into a whirlwind romance. Oh, okay. But, uh, so okay, so they're they're very in love and it's great and whatever and they had nobody There's a lot of sex in this book, but you don't see anything beyond kissing. Like mm. as soon as anybody starts kissing, it's like game set match. Sometimes people are occasionally like described as being naked. Oh. Like Lucas Johns, like the first after their first night together, he's like sitting on a chair, like naked, smoking a cigar, which is quite <laughs> oh, a look. <laughs> that's a great look. <laughs> which is a nineteen seventy seven manly oh, man. Oh man. Is he like looking out the window through some blinds? No, he's just like looking at her, like being like, Whoa. So, okay. One thing that sucks is that he calls her mama all the time. I'm not into that. No. Which might also be a 1977 thing, but he's always calling her mama. I was really into Lucas John until this very moment. I was too. And like, he does it once and I was like, ugh. And then he does it 117 more times or however often. Let me actually look, look grab the Kindle thing and pet, just search for the word mama and see how names, many times. Uh, pet names in general are bizarre. I don't like I don't know why some feel better than others. I'm with you that like 45 results found. <laughs> That's too many mamas. It's a lot of is a lot of mamas. Not the mama. No thanks. <laughs> I'm the baby, but you don't gotta love me. <laughs> oh yeah, pet, man! Pet names are pet names are curious because they are like a private thing, and you don't like call your partner by their pet name like out in public. But sometimes, sometimes you'll even, do it in front of friends. But sometimes like, it's not really like a pet name. Even it's just like here is the shorthand I use that is an expression of affection. But also, it's weird for me to say your name out loud all the time. Yeah, like sometimes Suzanne and I call each other Bub because we bub each other very much, <laughs> and that's where that comes from. Now you go. Don't think we have one of those. You don't. We. I don't think we. We use like. What do we use? We look. We You've got to have like, something. People say baby. Like we say that. I guess that's boring. But we don't. We don't say like what up, bummo. Like start, we don't start calling Laura Mama tomorrow Ew. and see uh, how long your marriage lasts. The podcast is canceled. I was sent to another dimension. <laughs> So he's calling her mama. It's hot and heavy. It's hot and heavy. He's calling her mama. There's a lot of kissing that turns into sex that we don't get to see. Boo. Um, boo, yeah. <laughs> what goes wrong? What happens? So what is happening with, with Lucas John is that he is being tailed by the cops. Uh-oh. And so it turns out not only are there elements within the legal system who want to see him thrown back in jail because he's still agitating for so much change on the outside. But there are what is described in the book as like leftist radicals who <laughs> that took a turn. Yeah. Who like don't <laughs> think he's doing enough or like don't agree with his methods or something who want, who also just want to straight up pop him. Some men just want to watch the world burn master Wayne. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Whoa. Um, so that's the that's like the tension that's hanging over the relationship, and also as Kezia gets tired of 
lying and living her double life with Luke, she also kind of just gets tired of doing it with everybody else. And so yeah. she dumps her Soho boy toy. She dumps her beard. She gets in a fight with Edward, the the older gentleman who we talked about a little bit yep, earlier, yep. who also like no men can have a relationship with Kezia without secretly loving Kezia. It's very like when Harry met Sally in that way. Mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is, is occasionally uncomfortable, but only rarely like actually comes to a head. Um, Are all of her friends men? So she does have, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit because I wanted to, I wanted to save the stuff I didn't care as much for. Oh, okay. Um, so we kind of get the, through for the back yeah. part of the podcast because there there are a lot of moments where I just straight up did not like these characters. Sure, sure. But um, but when you take out all the padding that I talked about earlier and just talk about like what happens, there is a nugget of like the book that I w- kind of was expecting this to be and wanted it to be. Oh, in okay. There, which is like high drama and secret lives and romance <laughs> and asterisk sex. <laughs> <laughs> You mean S asterisk asterisk. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so uh what is what ends up happening is that Luke it, he ends up having to go to a parole hearing because there is a there's like a riot at San Quentin that a few guards die in. Oh. And he is like implicated as somebody who is agitating and he's like he's given interviews and he is on the record like very firmly as being an agitator Mm. and really the only thing that was keeping him from being thrown back in is that the people who ran the prisons thought he was a bigger pain to have inside oh wow organizing than outside okay and so they go to this this hearing and it doesn't i mean it doesn't look like it's gonna go great but kezia is sort of convinced herself that it is like that they have a good lawyer and maybe things are going to be okay but things are not okay and he gets thrown back in prison Mm. and she kind of breaks down because she like she says you know i had insulated myself from all this i was totally self-sufficient and then i let you in and now you're getting taken away from me and like i don't know how to like stand up anymore because i can't go back to what i was doing before you came in like a wrecking ball he came in like a wrecking ball, yeah. really. Yeah, it's true. That's a beautiful. Is that, <laughs> that what? Is that Robert Frost? <laughs> it is Robert Frost. Uh, good is did he write Good Fences, Make Good Neighbors, mm-hmm. and then Wrecking Balls Break Good yep. Fences? <laughs> yeah, Wrecking <laughs> Uh And then he, so she goes to visit him, and. He says, okay, mama, I'm taking you off my visitor list because you have to like get over me because I don't know how long I'm going to be in here. Like, it's just, it's, it's, I can't hold on to you because it's just going to, it's going to do more damage to you than hmm. not. Hmm. Um, and then like a few weeks after that, he just gets knifed in prison and dies. Whoa. Um, well there's this this whole other side plot so there's a there's a uh mexican fellow named uh alejandro I, I think who is running a sort of um not quite a halfway house because they don't have like inpatient anything but kind of a drug rehab like outreach facility mm-hmm. up in harlem 
and uh, Luke had, had taken Kizzy up there and like introduced them because he like, Luke thought that Alejandro was a cool dude, and he is. And so Kizia is leaning on him a lot, and they hang out a lot. And because Alejandro is male and within like a 50-foot radius of Kizia for more than 10 minutes, comes to love her. Sure. Um, like you do. And then after, so after Luke dies, she's in a really bad place and she and Alejandro declare their mutual love for each other. But she says, you know, I need you to leave. I need to figure stuff out for myself. And so she goes to Europe and she just bums around Europe for like six months and she gets better and things like. (laughs) Did she just like eat a lot of bread and olive oil? I mean, I think that's part of it. Like that would help me get over a breakup slash death yeah. yeah um and then she comes back to new york and she's like you know i'm i'm gonna my experience with this has has helped me reconcile these two parts of my life like i am wealthy and an heiress but i don't want to like live that lifestyle and now i have the tools i need to do both things i'm gonna go see alejandro and tell him hey are you still down but even if he's not, it's going to be cool because like I'm my own person and it's going to be great. <clears throat> and that's the end of the book. So we don't huh. see like she, her, and Alejandro like, re meet. You could just I and I kind of like the I kind of like yeah. the ending. Just like you know, I'm gonna just marry Tyler Moore. This whole situation. Yeah, I kind of dig that. And it's it's interesting that you bring it up. So like, um, there's an art couple of articles I found. I found a, a thesis that someone at USC wrote in 2010 all about Daniel Steele novels. <laughs> Specifically, it's called The Lovesick Journalist, The Image of the Female Journalist in Daniel Steele. This sounds a little... So there's a joke from a later season of Community, or maybe sure. I don't remember which season of Community it was, but the class is called Who Was the Boss? And it's all about... <laughs> very academic study of who the boss was like who the boss sure. actually was on the show who's the boss good and that's what this kind of sounds like yeah to me. so this this author daniel neiman kind of goes through like seven or eight different books including this one um basing a lot of so, some of her arguments on an essay written by joe zaltzman 2003 uh who runs an organization that's all about how journalists are portrayed in popular culture um and talks about how like you know references murphy brown references mary tyler moore references um just female journalists in general in the 20th century and their portrayal and how Steele does not seem to and it sounds like even in this book um this is laid in there doesn't really discuss like career struggles or competing with a dude in the workplace or anything like that because that is like a trope of like the hardworking woman reporter who can get ahead as a reporter but will never run the newsroom mm-hmm. kind of thing and how do they balance the like uh, aggressive ambition with quote-unquote womanly qualities of like being loving and sympathetic and, and like women always going after the human angle yeah, they can like write the, this the sob stories. This book doesn't even really interface with the journalistic bits of Kezia's thing very in, much at yeah. all. Except except insofar as her 
all of her writing appears either under a male pseudonym or sure, an ambiguous sure. pseudonym that is probably assumed by most readers to be male. Hmm. Um, but she's doing this, you know, she's doing this secretly. She's doing this freelance. She's not in a newsroom except like briefly when she's getting made fun of when she p- has that one job. Yeah. It's not a workplace thing. So, okay. Like all of her stuff's just kind of pitched out to the world. Yeah. And she seems to like, her work is only really mentioned by Steele intermittently. Like when she is when she is wrapped up in Luke's stuff. Hmm. I don't know. Like she doesn't seem like she has that many specific deadlines to hit, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it seems like it is it is a it's a plot device to get her into a room with Patrick Warburton and it is a way to communicate to the reader that she wants more than her socialite life. But it doesn't necessarily, like, she's not, like, out there trying to, you know, be the next Watergate or something. No, she's not trying to be the next Watergate. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which what is are their names? you just said. Woodward and Bernstein. There you it. go. <laughs> That's, wasn't that their tag team name, Watergate? Yeah, Watergate. That's what the scandal is named for. Sure, sure. So... It sounds like it like really distilled down like the beats got you kind of what you wanted. But you said like and I've read this about other Daniel Steele books. There's a lot of padding here, huh? Just a lot. Of extra yeah, like stuff. I, I shared a few screenshots with yep. you yep. from earlier today because I, I read like probably <laughs> the last half of this book um, over around like three or four hours today yeah, sure. and at a certain point just like you just you can only watch people talk about nothing for so long before it kind of starts to wear so i'm just gonna like read one of those things actually that i'd screenshot it to please you. do um he made a face in response yes but we keep them under control not like new york one of these days a mad onslaught of crazed pizzas will take over the town he made fierce monster faces and she laughed you're a nut good heavens look at that car they rolled into a drive-in food place on Lombard and waiting at the window was a hot rod with the back all jacked up. You'd think they'd fall on their faces. Of course not. What a beauty. Vroom, room. He made the appropriate sounds and grinned broadly. Haven't you ever seen one like that? Not that I can remember, and I dare say I'd remember, except maybe in a movie. What a horror. Horror, it's a beauty. Wash your mouth out with soap. She was laughing and shaking her head. Don't tell me you had one like that. I'd be shocked. Well, I did. A lowrider special. My first car. After that, I screwed up my image and got a secondhand VW. Life was never the same. And so this is just oh. one page that is surrounded by other pages of them uh. like, talking to each other. And yes. you could have just said, like, they got dinner. And it, <laughs> I don't know. Like, you could have you confined this to the emotionally and narratively relevant bits of the conversation and doing this sometimes I think is a character building thing, but doing it all the time is just like a weird, like when you do a D and D character and you write them a four page backstory that nobody ever references. This is just yeah. like pulling that backstory out and reading like it as everybody. a conversation and yeah, just right. saying it to people. Yeah. Like why does this do, why does it, why do I care if he had this car? Yeah. It just rhythmically, this seems frustrating. And it, yeah, and and so that was the deal. Is it was like the the whole last third of the book, pretty much. You've got Luke's parole hearing hanging over the heads of all the characters, 
and they just like go and they get drunk or they have a burrito or something and you just have to read about every minute of it. Just tell me when, just tell me if he's going back to jail and then what happens after that? Like I'm, I'm cool not to know some of this stuff. Yeah. I've read, uh, some articles that, especially later in her career, when, as we alluded to, she's turning out like five to 20 books a year or whatever that her, her writing process. And she's said this does, it doesn't involve just sitting and like cranking out a book and then moving on to the next one. She is generally like tossing around a couple books at once um and some reviewers have like credited have they have assumed or or whatever the verb that you might want here is um that this type of like writing process leads to extra padding where it's like oh i've thought about those characters i'm thinking about this outline over there here's the book that i'm writing right now and there's just all sorts of extra stuff going on. Yeah, like some of it some of it reads almost like a sort of like I don't know if you've ever had a creative fiction writing class, but um there are writing exercises that you do like there's yeah, yeah. A, there's like create a sense of place. There is, you know, write a conversation between two characters. Some of it feels a little like prompty just like lay out this conversation between two characters as a way to practice writing dialogue between two characters yeah yeah and it doesn't like it only rarely seems integral to the to the forward motion of the of the story you know cool and i know like i i guess if i were gonna be charitable like so that really that conversation is between Kezia and Alejandro and I think if I was going to be charitable I would say we'd see a lot of conversations between the two of them specifically so that when they both say they love each other like right there at the end of the book it feels kind of earned yeah but the way that she's earning it is just by like throwing a lot at us and like just giving the characters a lot to talk about and then having them say I love you to each other a few times throughout like as friends to just build to to drive home that they have built a relationship and a rapport. But again, I think that there are works of fiction that do this without showing every minute of that of that process. Yeah. Sometimes you you can just tell me that there's an iceberg under the water. You don't need to like drag my face under the Don't waves. tell me like how the iceberg formed oh. like, with the molecules <laughs> of the iceberg. Yeah. Okay. Um, I also, you, you before alluded to, I asked like who her other friends were in the book and you wanted to talk about that briefly. So yeah, this, this will segue, this will be the last stuff that we talk about, but it is, it is sometimes because we are in the position of having our protagonist be, a person from a very very privileged background. Oh sure. There is there are just moments where I read this on the page and I, and I get that this is sort of this sort of the point of some of this genre is to be yeah. like escapist and maybe a little aspirational and and kind of above it all like you're probably reading this because you don't want to read about somebody's like money problems or something. I think that's exactly correct. Yeah. Um but so okay, so the she does have other friends, like some socialite friends. The one who we see the most often is this woman named Tiffany, and Tiffany is in an unhappy marriage, and she doesn't really have anything else outside of this 
socialite lifestyle. And she is a pretty serious alcoholic. She's always like at all these parties drinking too much and saying that everything is divine and getting rushed home in a cab while her husband goes out to, to liaise with somebody else. Mm. And this threat. And, and so what the, what seal is using Tiffany as is to say, you know, there, but for the work that she's doing on the side and like her emotional inner depth, there, there, but for that goes Kezia. Oh, like, as a cautionary, a, t- here's a cautionary tale. Yeah, here it's, is it's, it's part cautionary tale, part like stand in for Kezia's mother. Okay. Um, but the way this relationship ends is that Kezia is out taking a walk and she sees Tiffany like literally on the street, like laying on the street Ooh. in the clothes that she wore the night before. And so they take a cab back to Kezia's place and Tiffany is telling her like, you know, my husband's mother said, you know, he's not, she's going to not give him his inheritance if he doesn't divorce me and she's going to take the kids and I'm going to lose like what, what little I'd have in this very empty life of mine. And Kezia, who has known this woman since college and has many, many fond memories of her and being with her just wants her to like leave like just wants her to kind of get out because she's being made uncomfortable and she's getting reminded of her mother and blah, 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 blah. And so Tiffany leaves and then she commits suicide later that afternoon. Whoa. And it is just, it's really hard for me to root for Kezia after that and like hope for her to escape her socialite life because she had already started having this awakening and she knows exactly what demons Tiffany is wrestling with. And she knows like how this life can be lonely and and empty. And her response as like probably the last person who sees Tiffany alive is not like, how can I help this person? Yeah. But please get this person away from me because it's too, it's just too hard to deal with. And I guess my, does that, like failure of hers like impact how she carries herself with other characters later in the book she's very sad about tiffany but not really yeah that's that it just kind of it, it, it's driving her own narrative of some as somebody who doesn't want to get sucked down and like become tiffany oh okay yeah it's it's not about like oh maybe i should change my behavior maybe it was my fault there are in fact passages where she is exonerated by other characters saying, you know, it is Tiffany's fault. It's not, it's not your fault that she drank too much or your fault that she killed herself or yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really uncomfortable. It's not great. I didn't love it. Well, and, and again, like it's always one of those things like, is this book endorsing that or not? But like the, but to what you say about how the book wraps up and how we're supposed to feel about her potential future without Hondro, like I reckon we are not closing on, hey, this lady made some mistakes. Like, we're closing on, like, hey, this lady has the potential to, to like, sew it up. And right, cool. we're, we're cl- we close on, like, Kezia does go through a stretch after Luke dies, but before she goes to Europe and, and, like, gets over it, where she is, like, drinking every single day. And there mm-hmm. are explicit links drawn between her and Tiffany. And... Tiffany still is just there as the cautionary tale, not as not as something she did wrong that haunts her, not as anything. It's just like, I don't want to be Tiffany. Yeah, 
Yeah. Which okay. kind of sucks. It's like almost there. You're describing a thing to me that I'm like, okay, I'm there, but I need like one paragraph in Kezia's head to like land the moment. Yeah. And it might also, you know, it might be a little bit of another, like a product of its time thing where sure, sure. alcoholism or any kind of addiction would be seen not necessarily as a disease, but as a personal failing. And it, also, it, mm-hmm. And, and and the way it's read in the book makes a little bit more sense if that's the way that, you know, if, if, if that's the way that the reader is expected to interpret it is like, why is this person doing this thing to themselves? That's a good point. That's a good um, point. <clears throat> yeah, we don't talk. Still, yeah, it's not yeah. talking about the same way. All right. Huh. Um, and, then, and then the other thing, which is a little <laughs> more humorous and gets into Kezia's privilege. I'm just going to read a couple Hit me. Example. So, okay. So, you know how Lucas John was literally in prison for oh, six no. years? Okay. You know how he's, how he's actually in, in real prison? Like in San Quentin, right? In Which San is like Quentin, a tough in, prison. In San Quentin in 1970, whatever. Okay. Um, and so she is, she is reading Luke's book in preparation for this interview. And. Kezia is talking about how she kind of envies him because he is, you know, he's successful and respectable and he's, he's, you know, he believes in this cause and whatever. And she thinks in an indirect way, the book related to her, a prison can be any kind of bondage, even lunch at La Grenouille, which is the fancy restaurant that she eats at. And then there's another thing where she's, where she and Luke are talking or like, this is Luke thinking the bird in the gilded cage was dying inside and he knew it. He wondered if she knew it too. So again, like now you have the person who is actually in literal prison thinking of and like comparing this socialite world to prison. Um, It's a special world, Lucas. She said finally with its own special rules. Yeah. Like the joint. He looks suddenly bitter. You mean prison? He nodded quietly in answer. I think you might be right. A silent, invisible prison with walls built of codes and hypocrisies and lies and restrictions and cells padded with prejudice and fear and all of it studded with diamonds. So, like, listen, gang, I get what she's trying to say, but he's also saying this high-class, rarefied, rich girl life that you lead is like actual prison. (laughs) And they say it so many times I and think is, is that the metaphor that you want to base this whole relationship on well is that you're you know in a way you're both prisoners <laughs> because one of you is like lives a life that you didn't want that you were just born to and you have to deal with and one of you was in prison <laughs> I guess the that wouldn't ring as awkward to me if he literally weren't working to reform prisons, uh-huh. like if he were not combating the method and the system of incarceration, and we just want to talk about a dude who got locked in a box and a lady who's locked in an, emo- in an emotional box, like <laughs> that's that okay? That that has that's a poet that's poetry that's been around for a long time and for and listen for for a while when it was just kezia thinking it i was like (laughs) man i don't like what i think this is saying 
but maybe somebody's going to set her straight later. And then later you have the person who is actually in prison being like, you know, your life is kind of like a prison. It's kind of like the joint. Mama. Mama. (laughs) You can, you the listener, can share your Danielle Steele thoughts with me and Andrew. Um, at overduepod at gmail.com. We will be in a prison of your feedback. We'll um, be in a prison of anticipation until we hear from you. Like the joint. Uh, hit mm-hmm. us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com slash overduepod. Uh, thanks to those of you who reached out this past week, including Daniel, Anthony, Becky, Hillary, Brianna, Amber, uh, Iago, Starfish Chick, Malcolm, Kenneth, Steve, and many, many more. Uh, Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is an internet website. Up there, you'll find links to the social feeds that Craig mentioned, plus links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and our RSS feed. You can subscribe to the show using any of those methods and get new episodes when they come out on Mondays and, you know, whenever we release bonus episodes. Um, If you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, do rate and review us. Especially if they're good ones. If you have something nice to say, we want to hear it. If you have something constructive but mean to say, I guess that's fine too. Um, We also have links to um, a new listener page you can use to uh, point people to if they are new to the show and you want some good ones. Just some some ones that we're particularly proud of. Some real real bops. Um, And a link to our Patreon page. We made some changes there a few weeks back uh, that that people seem to be responding well to, including a new podcast that you guys are going to hear soon called Stop Homer Time, where we read the Odyssey a couple books at a time. Rock and roll. Yeah. Um, is there anything else? What do you, what, what's happening next week? Next week is our crossover ep with the folks that the librarian is in. We talked about Peyton Place by Grace Metalius. Uh, and then I am reading for our May, May, April. What year is it? Um, I am reading for the bonus episode, Austerlitz by W.G. Sebald. And then we got May. Look out for that May schedule. It's coming your way Mm -hmm. soon. Mm -hmm. It's not quite there yet. As soon as we make it, you'll have it. (laughs) Come around the bend. You'll get it. Thanks so much for listening to our nonsense for another week, everybody. And until we talk to you next, try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast. Boy, I sure hope people think you never be doing this podcast and you're like, you know, I sure hope this is something. I really hope people. I sure like, hope this gag is fun. I really hope we keep doing the show so that in 10 years when no one knows that TED Talks anymore are, that they really love this part of this our back part, catalog. This part, this is really good. Boy, so what now? <laughs>